Jesus is our better hope because Jesus is our only hope. He's our only hope. We're in a section of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 10. We're in the second part of a shared kind of two-week message. The big truth that we've been looking at is Jesus is our access. We paralleled this passage in Romans chapter 5 last week. And we saw that Paul wrote and he said, through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in him. Jesus is our access. If you missed that last week, tcbchurch.org, you can go back, you can listen to the message, you can cover the notes. Uh, You can follow on the TCB Church app. But we have so many resources that are designed to help you. There's a whole section with probably more than you can consume to study along with us as we study through Hebrews. If you want to study and get involved in something else that you might grow or help a disciple grow, downstairs there are blueprint guides that walk you through, like just great books and great resources, everything from how to pray to how to study your Bible to how to like just share your faith with confidence, all those things there. You're a parent, there's family discipleship resources, there's a family discipleship plan, a scope and sequence that walks you week by week for 18 years with your kids that you can have conversations around God's big truths and unpack those things, the implications into how we live. There are groups that you can connect in, be challenged. You can study, you can fellowship with one another, you can go serve together. See, here's what I want you to hear and feel a little bit of the tension. If you would say something like, well, man, I would go make disciples, but I don't know how. I mean, For most of us, that's a real good excuse. I mean, it's just an excuse. If you don't know how, dig in. For most of us, it's that we're not trying. And there are resources there. And you know, we can improve on those. And we would love to. And we want to. And by we, I mean you and I, the one and others in this. And so we're in this section and we are reminded that Jesus is our access. And I would encourage you. Man, saturate your heart and your mind to find your hope in Jesus and draw near. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Jesus is our access. We have 
confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in that hope, in the hope of the glory of God. So last week, we covered three of our five big ideas. We're going to just review those, and then we'll jump into big idea four and five. All right, so first one, again, a little bit of review. Jesus followers can have confidence, they have confidence to enter God's presence. Jesus followers have confidence to enter God's presence. He says in verse 19, brothers, he's talking to Christians or Jesus followers. Paul said in Romans 5, those who have been justified by faith. And he's saying in this new covenant, you have a new outcome. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, we have peace with God, Paul says in Romans 5. We have obtained access into God's presence. Before in the old covenant, you were kept out of God's presence. There's this picture that we studied for months of the sacrificial system where once a year the high priest would go past the curtain and offer sacrifices for the sins of Israel. But then, even then, Israel isn't permitted to enter the presence of God. And here, in this new covenant, you have confidence to enter into God's presence. How? How can that be? What is the source of our confidence? What's the source of our access? Well, it's through Jesus' sacrifice. It's not ours, it's through him. Verse 19, by his blood. Verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And so access, entrance, man, that's great, but for how long? So we see a second implication, a second big idea. Jesus' followers have a great high priest. Since we have a great priest, throughout Hebrews we've seen Jesus Described as the revelation of God in full, God in flesh, God making himself known to us. Jesus who delivers a better rest, a Sabbath rest because he is a better high priest. He is a better high priest because he serves over a better covenant. It is a better covenant because Jesus himself is the better sacrifice. And therefore Jesus is the better hope. And so the argument is this, that Jesus' sufficient sacrifice is complete. It is finished. And now he is our resurrected mediator, our eternal high priest, through whom, through his sacrifice, through his existence, through his life, unlike the priest of old that died, Jesus remains forever Through his life, we have access, certain. It won't go away, therefore we are saved by his life. Our access is irrevocable because Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient forever. Forever. We can trust in it, we can have confidence in it. Hebrews 10, 21, we have a great high priest, a great priest 
priest over the house of God. And Jesus is so forever. And we've seen that repeatedly communicated through Hebrews. Incredible, powerful confidence we have in our access. It's not about you and it's not about me. It's about him. And so how do we live in light of this big truth that Jesus is our access? What, what do we do with that? Since we have this confident access, since we have an eternal priest forever, we get these three let us statements, these three response statements to this big truth. First, Jesus followers draw near to Jesus with faith. That was our third big idea. Jesus followers draw near to Jesus with faith. Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This draw near is an approaching, but it's not past tense. It's not approach once. It's not just a decision. It's a continuous approaching, continuous approaching. It's similar to the term we use at Tri-Cities a lot to describe this, pursue, pursue. We live our life continuously approaching, pursuing the access granted to us through Jesus. What has been declared of us, we long for it to be our reality. We have been declared right before God. Our access is certain. There's a reason this argument is going to lead us into a section about faith and the conviction of things not seen. We have confidence in who Jesus is. We have confidence that he will be faithful and keep his promise. We have been declared right before God by his account. We have been granted access into his presence and we long, we long for that to be the reality in which we live. We long to be sanctified before God. And we saw two examples of this last week, just really quick. One was Paul's attitude in Philippians chapter 3 verse 8. Paul wrote, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, I count them as rubbish. He goes on in verse 13, he says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he challenges us and says, let those of us who are mature think this way, living with our eyes not fixed to the things and the distractions and the temporary aspects of this world, but looking forward to the access that we have in Christ Jesus. We live a life full of faith. And the second example is we see the Lord's instructive prayer, Jesus' prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, he says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Now listen, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long for, we draw near, we pursue. 
live for. A life continuously approaching. Continuously approaching. Deeply pursuing the access granted to us, declared to us through Jesus. It is our hope. In him there is everything. And apart from him there's nothing. And so we draw near, it says, with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We don't draw near with outward works. No, we draw near with a sincere, life-changing faith that Jesus is God in this faith. This faith is actionable. Everything else counted as rubbish. Nothing apart from Jesus. Everything in him. There's life. And so we draw near. There's a directional, repentant action to this response, this faith that we now have. To draw near to the new and living way in Jesus is to leave behind the old, looking to the new, full of faith. It's living submission, devotion, and endurance. It is our life lived out as worship, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So we pursue, we live today in the full faith of our declared access. We draw near. So we're going to pause and before we jump into our next two big ideas, our new ones for this week, I, I just want to ask you a question. It's kind of a lighthearted question, but it's sincere. It'll make sense in a minute. You're just going to have to kind of think about it, then we'll come back to it. All right, so I've got some kids in the room, teenagers, you're, you're really in the best position for this. But I want you to think through what I'm about to ask you. Don't have to, like, respond, just think about it. Have you ever just been irritated by your parents because they want you to tell them like what you're doing you know like we're well who's going to be there what are you going to do are you sure what time will you be home and is there not in you some natural resistance and irritation to such questions? I can't access this on my iPad. Will you please give me permission? With like an eye roll of like, why don't you just turn all this stuff off? Right? It's irritating sometimes. Us mean parents, we just like control your life. Ever think that? All right. So here's the truth. I thought that a lot when I was a kid. I think about it a lot different now as an adult. Not just as a parent, just as an adult. Do you think your parents are being mean? You think they're being hateful? You, you think they're just trying to limit you? To hold you back? To make you awkward with your other friends, to keep you somehow just secluded? Do you think they're being, like, you know, just a jerk? Think they're being hateful? Every parent in the room knows that's not what's happening. 
And as you grow up, you understand that's not at all, that is not at all the motive for that engagement. And frankly, if you're here and you grew up in a home and your parents just let you do whatever you want, you almost look back and you lament because you realize that that type of pursuit, that type of engagement is not easy, it's hard, and it's motivated by love. And you believe that. And yet with one another, our definitions quickly change. And I think the author of Hebrews understands some of that dynamic and our fears and to some extent maybe our laziness. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we walk through these next two. I think it will help you have a little bit of a context and a frame. But he goes on and he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. It's our fourth big idea. Jesus' followers hold fast to God's word. Remember, Jesus is the revelation, the word in flesh. And most of verse 23 is pretty easy to understand. It's not like there's a lot of things here that don't just contextually make sense to us. We kind of get our mind around it pretty quick. But one phrase I want you to pay attention to is the confession of our hope. The NIV translates it to the hope we profess. And that, that's fine. It, it, it is a profession. That's what we mean when we look at the term confession. It's our profession of faith. But there's a nuance, and it's really important. I want to make sure you catch it. The subject is not your word or your decision. Rather, it is the doctrine affirmed or the truth that is being professed. For example, I have decided to accept gravity as true and live accordingly. The subject is not my decision to affirm it. The subject is the truth of gravity which I affirm. Does that make sense? And that's really important because as we read here, the confession of our hope, it is Jesus. Jesus is our access. Our hope is in Christ alone. And so the charge is to anchor into Jesus as God in flesh, as Lord, as Savior, as access into the presence of God. The source of our profession of faith. See, authentic, spirit-led, saving faith proclaims there is no salvation in ourselves. Only sin, only death. Yet in Jesus there is righteousness, purpose, hope, love life and so we turn from ourselves we turn from our pride our death and we worship Jesus as God as Savior with our life this declaration this profession this confession 
of hope in Jesus is the essence of Christian faith. And as days, weeks, and months pass from conversion, new temptations and deceptions and distractions will arise. Things that we were just ignorant of and didn't know and didn't think about at conversion. And throughout all of it, the faith of the redeemed withstands. Jesus remains supreme. He remains worth it. He remains sovereign. He is God. He is Lord. He is Savior. By grace it holds, growing in us and being refined by the trials once unimaginable at conversion. Jesus remains supreme. Nothing apart from him. Only death. Everything in him. Salvation. Life. As the author of Hebrews says, a Sabbath rest beyond the circumstance of our day. Perfect peace with God. Access into his presence. An outcome so precious. Today's circumstances today's suffering is not worth comparing to what lies ahead in that access in Christ Jesus our Lord and so saving faith is not dead it is alive it is active in us and so the subject of our confidence our faith it is the source it compels us to respond to live in light of what we believe. To live within the confidence of who Jesus is. That he is faithful. We've seen this throughout this great book as we've been studying through it. Back in chapter 4, verse 14, since then, notice the source. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Response. Let us hold fast our confession. Source, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Response, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Draw near. Pursue the access that is declared in Jesus. Hold fast, anchor your life according to our hope in him. This idea of hold fast that's used here, it's not wavering. Think faithful, think um, resolved, think trustworthy. The point is this, the source of your hope is absolute. It's unchanging, it's not relative. Therefore, don't swerve around. Stay steady. Hold your compass fixed on him. Do not waver. And sometimes, man, in our sin nature, it's so easy to compromise. There's a great study going on right now at 9.30. They're studying through the book of Judges. And Judges illustrates again and again Israel's compromise. But if you were to go ask one of those Hebrews, one of those Israelites, wait a minute, who's your God? They go, oh, Yahweh, the God of Jacob, 
the God of Abraham, he is our God. But you say, well, but out there in your field, there's that statue. What's that? I'm like, oh, that's Baal. What? What's that do? Oh, he helps it rain. And you're looking at them like, what? And like, oh, there were some farmers here before us, and they said that's how they got it to rain. No wavering, no compromise. Hold fast. Look to Jesus. See, where do you see that? The author says, For he who promised is faithful. It's your source. Jesus is faithful. But let's be, let's be really careful that we don't try to define Jesus. That we trust that Jesus has made himself known. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus has made himself known. He is God. He is supreme. He's not whoever we want him to be. He's not just some idea that we get to make up. He's not just some cultural thing that we've kind of cooked up through, you know, grandmother after grandmother. He is real. He is absolute. He is unchanging. And Hebrews began making this point that God has made himself known in the Son. He used to speak through prophets, but now he speaks through his son, through Jesus. And so he warns you and I and the reader, we would do well then to pay attention to his revelation. Hold fast, do not swerve, Jesus is sufficient. Final big idea, Jesus' followers observe to disciple. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All right. Notice something. It says us, it says one another. There is a plurality activated in our access. There is an adoption in Jesus. It's why we get to respond and rightfully say to one another, brother and sister. And so we are served and we serve one another. One another. There's mutual responsibility and benefit to the one another's. And so the author says, consider how to. The Tri-Cities, we use this word a lot called observe. In our process, it's observe. How you can add, expand, and restore. It's just handles at getting at discipleship. But it begins with observe. You look around and you consider how to build up the body of believers. Every person has a next step. From conversion all the way through saturation. 
and we are a part of that. We share in the responsibility and the benefit of that. God working in us and through us. His church. And it means be careful to apply strategic thought. It's deep concern. It's less the emotional and more the actionable, by the way. So what does that mean? Like the emotional might say, man, I hurt for Bob. You know, he's really struggling and my heart just, my heart just goes out for him. If you've been in East Tennessee very long, we say, bless his heart. It's kind of an emotional thing. You feel something. Observing is this. Man, Bob is really struggling. What does he need? How can I help? Those are two different things. How do I get in his business? How do I get in the mess with him? How do I get him back in step with the body? There's an ongoing tone to this charge as well. It means to keep on caring. Don't grow weary in observing others for the purpose of building them up. And by the way, the author could have qualified this with family or friends or, you know, your inner circle, your small group, but he doesn't. The audience remains one another. And so it's important that we do not excuse ourselves and see ourselves responsible. You are responsible for the people in this room. That's important. Because some of you, back to that example of your kids, when it comes to someone else, you want to say, but they're my kids. And what you're really saying is, I'm not responsible for them. You are. We are responsible for one another. We live with Such a fear of being misunderstood, such a fear of being rejected, that what is said next is so blatantly dismissed and sinfully abandoned in our culture, it is crippling the church. So if I've lost you at some point, pay attention as we get into this section. He says, stir up. This term is almost always used with negative connotation. It, some translations use the word spur. It's probably not the best like translation, but man, the tone and the idea is conveyed. You ever, you ever seen a spur? I don't think it would feel very comfortable if someone spurred me. I'm just saying. Like I grew up in, I lived in Kentucky for a long time and there were horses everywhere. And there's this thought, you know, you can use, you train these horses and you break these horses and you can use the side of your heel. Use the side of your heel. You can just kind of tap them and the horse will almost always just kind of do the thing that you're tapping them to do. But sometimes the horse is just being a little stubborn and you give them the spur. It's uncomfortable. Irritating. They don't like it. I'll give you a, a, a different context. We have a dog. Uh, her name is Raven. She's a golden retriever, and we let her out, and we put a beep collar on her. It's a little collar, and it's got three settings. You can beep it, you can vibrate it, and you can shock her. Only had to shock her like once or twice when she was little. Don't send me mean emails. I learned it from Pastor Paul. All right. 
So here's the way this works. The dog will go outside and I will beep it. It makes a sound and 80% of the time on one beep, the dog is heading back to the house. 19% of the time, she just keeps doing what she's doing. She's occupied with something. And I'll hit the vibrate button and it starts to irritate her a little bit, right? And she usually comes back because she doesn't want the shock. Shock hurts more. Here's the point. Man, it's irritating to be provoked, to be stirred up. And if you don't think that's what it means, the other time this term is used in your New Testament, do you remember when Paul and Barnabas split up? In Acts chapter 15, 39, it says, there arose a sharp disagreement. That's the word. You with me? We are called to provoke one another, to spur one another, to irritate one another toward love and good works. And before you say, man, I didn't know that. I'm going to be great at that, right? Make sure you understand the goal is not to be irritating. The goal isn't to just be annoying. The goal is love and good works. However, the spur will irritate. It will. And so the emotional response of the disciple isn't the authority. We've got to just understand that. You know where you understand that? That illustration with your kids. You don't care how they feel about it. You love them. You'll spur them on. Why don't we have that same responsibility, that same love for one another? Is that a Bible thing or just a culture thing? Is that a pride thing? Is it a fear thing? See, the practical response is, I get in your business. I expose your presuppositions. I challenge your excuses. I admonish your defiance. And I work to create an environment that helps others do the same for me. This is what Jesus did throughout his ministry. He exposed people. Jesus didn't ask questions like, hey, how do you feel about? No. He asked questions that left them feeling exposed, naked. Like their presuppositions just disconnected in front of them. They weren't just engaging questions. They were irritating, provoking questions that called for change. You know how I know? Because the response is pretty quick. They either walked away, picked up rocks, or they turned. We see this throughout our New Testament but remember the context. Don't, don't lose the subcontext here in verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So church, listen, don't resist the spurring. It's good for us. Gather and pursue one another. We gather to provoke one another 
to good and good works. Let me give you a bigger definition. We come together as the church provoking one another, irritating one another, spurring one another on to set our eyes toward Jesus and live a life of faith with confidence of the access that we have in him. And when we turn our eyes off of that and we get distracted by all the things that you and I will in the world, we need churches to be ready beside of us to spur us back on. And let's just be honest, that's going to irritate me. I might even fuss about it for a day or two. You love your kids enough to do that. Do we love one another enough to do that? Is our faith strong enough to do that? See, the gathering, man, it centers around our weekly worship, but it's, it's a starting point. It's almost like a 10% tithe. You're called to, biblically, you're called in the New Testament church to give as an act of worship generously. You say, where do you come up with the 10% thing? Just because in the Old Testament, it was just always the starting point. It's just where they started. It's not some legalistic thing. It's not like somebody's sitting there trying to do your math. But there's a wisdom in the starting point. This weekly gathering is just the starting point. There are things, programs in our church, go groups and studies and fellowship and service. And I mean, there's meals and there's one-on-ones and there's so many things. Listen, here's the principle. The principle of organizing our lives around such stirring up, such debate, such accountability is inseparable from our faith. Because our faith says there's life in Jesus and all this other stuff becomes a distraction and man I'm tempted to be taken away by it and so then like today I mean who wants to be spurred on so it was a habit to neglect the gathering the author says but encourage one another man that is a great set up for a biblical definition of encouragement. Sometimes spurs are encouraging. Build one another up, spur one another toward the reality of our new outcome in Jesus. So I just want to take a couple minutes, I have to go fast, I want you to just have some general observations. These are pastoral, these are at best some wisdom of application but I'm just owning it it's a lot more just my opinion all right my observations I always want to make a distinction when I speak to you that way as opposed to just teaching the word but I want to give you some temptations that I see in the church and us and me first we've made excuses for why we don't do this we, I mean, we're so quick to think of things like legalism and use it as a straw man to neglect being stirred up. Listen, wisdom isn't always written in chapter and verse. In other words, like parents, if you know what your kids are studying in school, but you don't know what they're studying in God's word, you're leading poorly. I mean, I can't read you that in a Bible verse, but just in principle, based on your faith, that's just common wisdom. It's not legalism, it's just stirring you up to live out your faith. See, even in that, like with Lena, I mean, sometimes I do well and sometimes I just, I don't know, I get distracted and I struggle. 
And when someone comes up and they try to point it out to me, you know what? I don't, I don't want that. It kind of is irritating. And I might even gripe about it. And most likely I probably will. And I'll make some excuses and I'll blame the messenger and I'll blame their method in order to deflect the message. But listen, I need it. And I want to be part of a church that loves me enough to spur me on to good works and encourages me to live with my eyes fixed on Jesus. Let me give you another temptation. We've made ourselves the authority. The church is Jesus' church. Jesus is the head of the church. And he has established leaders under shepherds according to the authority of Scripture, pastors, elders, to oversee the church. And I understand what it might look like for me to call you and, or call you to submit to the pastors and elders of your church. At Tri-Cities, there's plurality. One of the things that I wish you understood is I don't just get to do whatever I want as a pastor. It is shared across that plurality of elders. I have no authority left to myself. I submit. I submit. If they do something wrong, I'm going to challenge them in a heartbeat. But by wrong, I mean biblically wrong. But in terms of preference and pursuit of these things, man, I'm going to talk with them. I'm going to learn from them. But I'm going to rest under their authority. Because of who they are, man, they are great men, but no. But because God has set it up that way. I'm going to honor him with the way that I live. And I'm not just going to try to like, make my own church and my own rules and give my own way and serve my own way. I, I, I want to be part of a local body. Next temptation, we've made ourselves the subject. Stir up one another is the charge. Whose responsibility is that to start? Think of this gathering, for example. Show up early. Sit somewhere else. Go talk to people you don't know. And by the way, when I say talk to them, I don't mean to ask them about the weather. Go find somebody and ask them real questions. Hey, are you in any groups? Why not? How are you getting accountability? What are you studying? Tell me about it. Ask them, when's the last time you shared the gospel? How did that go? Ask them, who are you discipling? Oh, you don't, you don't know how? Have, have you been to Equip on Wednesdays? There's some great resources downstairs. You want to go check them out after the service? Ask them how family discipleship is going. Do you have a plan? You're just winging it? Oh, you're really busy. I tell you what, let's grab coffee and bring your calendar and we'll look at your calendar and I can help you brainstorm where you can find time. Have you thought about that cutting out that Tuesday, Thursday thing? How do you worship in regular giving? Yeah. That feel different? And before one of you says, well, that's not my business, or that's not their business, it is. You wouldn't say that to your kid. And the only thing that keeps us from that is these cultural norms 
that Satan has used to keep us from having real discipling conversations with one another. And you want to know how we change those norms? You go first. See, we're tempted to protect ourselves instead of welcoming the spurs. You go first. You model every question I just asked. You normalize in your own life. You welcome them. You bring them in. You set up and you go first a culture that prioritizes your faith. Finally, we live with little faith. Notice how all the above temptations focus on ourselves. But remember what Paul said? Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but the one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. As the team comes up to lead us into a time of response, be reminded of our big truth. We have access in Jesus. Access into heaven. God's presence. Let us draw near. Continually approaching, full of faith what has been declared of us. Second, hold fast, do not swerve, anchor into God's revelation in Jesus. God has made himself known. Jesus is the source of our faith. He is the source of our confidence. In him, there is life, everything. Hold fast and do not swerve from your hope that is in him. And finally, as a church, let us stir up one another. Truly encouraging one another in Jesus. Finding our hope and our faith in him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are a great worthy God you are supreme you have made yourself known through your son Jesus you have given us the hope of life father I pray that you would use this time to transform us to change us Lord may people in this room be eternally different because of the work of your spirit in these moments in Jesus name we pray Amen.